before I read the first ten verses, let me let me do this little piece of uh, review. Remember, we've said several times that part of what the Book of Acts is showing us is that through the people of Jesus, the church, the work of Jesus continues. Uh, through the power of Jesus' Spirit in the people of Jesus, uh, the ministry of Jesus continues. And that's why what you should pay attention to when you look at the book of Acts is you see how the church was empowered to do the things Jesus did. We're the ongoing physical presence of Jesus in the world. That's why Paul calls the church the body of Christ. We're the only physical presence Jesus has in the world now. He gives us the gift of his spirit so that we can do the work of Jesus. That's why when you see something, and Peter's going to make it clear to us, when you see something like the uh, church healing someone, what you should think is that's Jesus continuing the ministry of Jesus through his people. Uh, that's part of our job description. Now, sometimes we, you know, we evidence a false humility, and we don't think Jesus can do much through us. Well, we can't do much, but he can do a lot through us. Again, it's not about us. It's not about our natural talents. It's about the Holy Spirit and the gifting of the Holy Spirit and how the, how the Spirit of Christ wants to make real the presence of Christ in the world. So that's why it's not Peter and John, and they make it clear. It's not Peter and John doing the healing in this text. So, um, you know, don't, don't use a false sense of humility to prevent Jesus from working through you. If he's called you to do it, he'll equip you to do it. Uh, and it's, it doesn't, should never bring any glory to you. It, it's to him. So um, that's why you have sermons throughout the book of Acts, and you see a lot of narratives in the book of Acts, things going on. And it's not just an interesting history of the earliest days of the Christian community. Uh, hopefully you are seeing what Luke wants you to see. Is, is how the church was the continuing presence of Christ in the world. So with that, what I want to do is read through the whole account, the first ten verses, and then we'll go back and, and, and look at it verse by verse. So, And we actually read the first verse last week when we talked about prayer times and how the early Christian community, until they leave Jerusalem, they're all, they're all Jewish at this point. They're still acting like Jews. They look like Jews. They worship like Jews. They pray like Jews. And they've just become followers of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. So we're not shocked with what verse 1 of chapter 3 says. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he, the lame man, asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he, Peter, was soon, took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately, immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. 
And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognizing him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Okay, so that's the story. Let's go back and look at it. Make sure we we pick up everything that Luke's putting down here. I've already said in verse 1, you see them going up to the temple at the ninth hour of prayer, uh, the ninth hour being 3 p.m., because they're counting time as Jews, not Romans. Romans started the day at midnight like we do, um, kind of an arbitrary time to start the day in the middle of the night. But Jews start the day at, at, at basically sunrise, which they saw at 6 a.m. So the ninth hour of the day to the Jewish community would be three, what we would call 3 p.m. It's a set hour of prayer. It's just like if you go to Jerusalem Day, you'll see the Western Wall, or what some people call the Wailing Wall. You'll see Jews there praying. You'll see Jews there praying with a book in front of them. Uh, that's either a Jewish prayer book, or it could, which is usually uh, in a Jewish prayer book, most of the prayers are psalms. They're praying psalms. But that's what they're doing. They're, they're doing set prayers at a set time at, the, at, their, at what remains of the temple today, the Western Wall. Uh, but Judaism did it that way. Christianity started out doing that way. Um, we still see that in the Christian faith, whether it's a monastery, the Book of Common Prayer, um, that we have this tradition of not just praying when we feel like it spontaneously, but, but making the effort to bracket our day in prayer, making the effort to call ourselves back to God uh, throughout the day. Uh, by prayer. So uh, the Jew, Jews had that prayer time, um, sunrise or maybe 9 a.m. after sunrise. Uh, then you'd have noon, then you'd have 3 p.m. 3 p.m., by the way, is also uh, in Temple Judaism, was the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, 3 p.m. And then you'd have uh, a set time of prayer uh, when the sun went down. So again, you're seeing Peter and John, they're good Jews. They would have known themselves to be nothing other than good Jews at this point. Um, they had just embraced the Messiah that the Jews had looked for for um, hundreds of years, and they believed that that Messiah was Jesus. So here they go, like good Jews, up to the temple for their time of prayer. Verse 2, and a man lame from birth. Now, later, uh, when Peter preaches about this and this gets discussed, uh, you'll, you'll see that this person has, has been... Um, is over 40 years old. So he's been lame for a really long time. He's been laying there at the temple gate for a really long time. Um, so he's been lame from birth. He's being carried, and they laid him daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the gate. Um, we don't know exactly what gate this is. It's probably what was known as the Nicanor Gate, which was known as the Corinthian Gate because it was an ornate gate um, that led in, into the temple area. So uh, for whatever reason, that was his spot. That was his spot to be, be taken to so he could beg for alms. Um, and in Judea, Judaism, just like in Christianity, uh, it's an act of piety. It's an act of devotion uh, to give alms to the poor. That's why you may, you may remember, if you're in a church that observes the 
kind of the liturgical calendar, on Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, the gospel text is always from the first chapter of uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel, which is chapter 5. And it's that text where Jesus talks about three practices that he, he says we will do as his followers. Um, um, you, you may remember those three practices that we're reminded of every Ash Wednesday. He, he talks about when you fast, not if, when you pray, not if, and when you give alms, not if. Well, that almsgiving is, is a part of Judaism. Um, it's part of a lot of world religions. By the way, it's part of Islam. That giving of alms to the poor, taking care of the poor. Uh, it's a voluntary giving, as we talked about last week, as we'll see again in, in uh, Acts chapter 4. It was not mandated or legislated. It was a voluntary giving. But it was very much a part of their faith. So they knew if they, for guys over 40 years old, so he's got some friends taking care of him. The way they're taking care of, uh, care of him is taking him to this gate where people would be coming and going for prayer times and worship in the temple. And a good place uh, to beg as the traffic passes by. And not only traffic, religious traffic passing by. So they lay him there. Verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple as good Jews, for they set time of prayer, um, this lame person asked to receive alms from Peter and John. Uh, John's sort of here in the background. You know, I mentioned when we started the book of Acts, I said, you know, we historically have called it, it's not really in the text, we've historically called it Acts of the Apostles. Um, I probably would call it Acts of the Holy Spirit through just a few of the apostles. Because you have Peter lifted up here, you'll eventually get Paul lifted up, and just a few other apostles make a, uh, an appearance. Like here, John is sort of in the shadows with Peter. Um, so here's, here's Peter and John going into the gate. The lame man assumes they're going to give him um, some, some finances, some alms. Verse 4, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. So um, Luke is helping you create a sense of expectation at this point. You know something's about to happen. Look at us. Verse 5, and he, the lame man, fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. You know, sometimes we, we don't know exactly what it is we need most. We know what we want to ask for. We know what we want. But we don't really always know exactly what it is we need most. One of the jobs of the people of Jesus in the world is to help the world know what the world needs. A lot of times they don't even know how to ask the right questions. They're looking for different things. Do you, do you know what the first words of Jesus are in the Gospel of John? It's fascinating. Uh, if you have a red-letter Bible and you look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, um, you can do it now or make your homework. If you look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, first red letters you'll see is where Jesus... And, you know, compare it to Mark. In Mark's gospel, the first thing he says, repent, believe, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, good deep theology. In John's gospel, the first red letters you see, 
in John chapter 1, look around verse 37, 38. Um, the, the first red letters you'll see is where Jesus turns to, to Andrew and John and says, what do you want? What do you want? You know, and most of us have assumed he's not just saying to, to Andrew and John, he's not just saying, what's on your mind? He's, he's asking them a deeper question than that. What do you want? We, as Christians, need to help folks around us know what they really want. People don't know what they want. They certainly don't know what they need. And that's why people spend their life chasing things they don't really need and probably shouldn't want like they want them. So part of the um, job of the Christian community is not just helping people meet their needs in Jesus Christ. We first have to show them their need. They don't even know they need Jesus. Their list of needs is extensive, and Jesus may not even be on that list. And churches sometimes can be busy helping people meet a whole lot of other needs, but they're not meeting their, their, the need that God wants to meet in their lives. So here's Peter and John. says, look at us. And the lame man looks at them, expecting to receive something from them. And you know exactly what he wants to receive. Money. He wants money. Because he thinks that's his greatest need. And he needs money. I mean, everybody needs money. That, that's on the list of what we need. I hope you know it's not your greatest need. Um, this person didn't know that was his, not his greatest need. That's just what he'd been in the habit of asking for. That's what he'd been in the habit of receiving from people. So he, he, he's expecting to receive something financial from them. And then Peter said something that is really beautiful um, and really has rather haunted us down through the centuries because of something one of the popes said one time. Notice what Peter said. I have no silver and gold, but what I do, I, what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And what one of our popes told us one time was um, Peter and John didn't have silver and gold, but they had the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. Now we've got silver and gold in the church. But guess what we may not have? We don't have that ability to say, get up and walk. So we need to be careful again about our relationship to finances or money. Um, yeah, we need to be careful about our finances or money. Um, I probably shouldn't say this, but that's usually not stopped me before. Um, we're in the middle of our pledge season. And I believe in pledging, making a vow to God is, is very biblical. Read the Psalms. Fulfilling the vows we make to God is very biblical. Uh, making those pledges helps us as a church or any church um, uh, plan, plan our ministries. It determines kind of what our budget will be for next year and what, what our dreams will be. So we're in that pledge season. Um, Ken Lyon helps us uh, with that. He's, he's, that's, he leads us in that effort. I, I received um, a correspondence this week from someone, really good people. I still receive this particular correspondence from them. It was a pledge saying we could activate it if we did something they wanted us to do. I'm glad that was your response. <laughs> anyway, 
We need to evaluate our relationship to money. We need to evaluate our relationship to money. We need to we just need to evaluate our relationship to money. The love of money is the root of all evil. Evil, you know. We read that from Paul later. Anyway, this Peter says, "I have no silver and gold," which probably means he does sometimes have silver and gold. He didn't have anything at this point. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you, in the name or in the spirit or in the authority or in the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Again, we are to be the people who continue the ministry of Jesus. Um, we, we definitely continue the ministry of healing. Now, healing is not always the same thing as curing, right? That's good Christian theology. Um, sometimes we're just focused on physical healing, and God does do that. Most of our life, throughout all of our life, God heals us physically time and time again, right? Up to this point, as far as I know, every disease, every cold, every flu, I uh, had COVID. All that's been healed. God has healed me many times in my life, you know, but there will come something one day that God might say, um, tarry with that for a while. There are some things in our lives only heaven will heal. That's why we, we know that God always heals us, even, and sometimes it's physical curing, sometimes it's a, a more important healing. I will never forget, and some of you probably heard me share this story, I will never forget a man from my second appointment, my second church. Uh, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me using his name or his family wouldn't mind me using his name. His name was Ed Adams. Think about him regularly. I still use the kind of ink pen he introduced me to. I'll never forget Ed Adams. Ed was an amazing guy, a, a Sunday school teacher, Bible teacher there in the church. And I'll never forget the Sunday morning after worship, he pulled me into my office and he told me, he said, um, they discovered that I've got kidney cancer in the one and only kidney I have. And it was a rather long, long illness. You know, we used to, I got to know him really well because I would go with him sometimes from Charlotte to Duke for his treatments. So I got to know Ed well, his family well. He, he eventually did pass away with, with that form of cancer that he had. They, they tried a lot. He passed away. So he didn't receive the physical curing that many of us were praying for. But I saw a lot of healing in his life. Ed was one of these good, strong businessmen, member of a previ- previous generation. He wasn't touchy-feely. He wasn't real warm. What I watched happen over the course of his illness, particularly in his final days, he changed. Uh, he had never told his children that he loved them. I watched Ed get to the place where he was telling his children he loved them, and before it was over, he was telling his pastor he loved me. <laughs> so I saw all sorts of healing in Ed Adams' life. Um, you know, that cancer was only healed on the other side of heaven. It was healed by heaven. God always heals. He either heals in this world or the world to come. You know, God not healing is not an option. God always heals. He either heals us in this world or the world to come. Healing is part of God's normative will for our lives. Um, he either heals us here or in the world to come. Um, so that's why when you see the Christians, when you see Jesus, when you see the, the performing of healing, you say, oh, that's a picture of God. Well, yeah, it is. Picture of Jesus, picture of God. Healing is God's normative will. And like I said, he's healed you so many times you, you've lost count. 
in your life of every disease, illness you've ever had. So we know that healing is part of God's normative will. Um, but but, you, but to, to, you have to have some sense of this whole Christian thing being a supernatural activity, you know, for us to, for us to seek healing. Now, we use all sorts of means for healing, but uh, whether it's medicine or rehabilitation, we use means for healing. At one point, you see Jesus spit and make some mud and use it to heal somebody's blindness. So we use all sorts of means for healing, but it, it comes from God. God is always busy healing us. So, you know, no is never the answer we get. God always heals us either in this world or the world to come. This man waited 40 years for his healing. He probably at this point already decided he was going to be healed in the world to come. But um, he was a little surprised this day when, when Peter allowed Jesus to work through him. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And uh, that happened. Look at verse 7. You see Peter acting in faith. He took him by his right hand and raised him up. You know, I suspect the man at this point saying, wait, wait, wait a minute. You know, I, I, I believe you can give me something good, but, you know, I'm not sure about you putting me on my feet. I've been lame for 40 years. Peter grabs him and helps him stand to his feet. And then I love the next phrase because, again, what is... What was, before he kind of probably walked away from it to follow Jesus, what was Luke's daytime job? He's a physician. That's why I love the next phrase. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Dr. Luke's giving you a physical description here. Um, Bible's amazing like that. That's why there's not extraneous words in the Bible. Yeah, it feels like a doctor telling the story. Immediately his feet and his ankles... I'm surprised he didn't go in and start talking about the names of the bones and stuff. His feet and his ankles were made strong. Then look at verse 8. And leaping up. Leaping up. That word is really important here. If, um, you know, everybody in this story, you're in the temple. Everybody in this story is, um, is Jewish. They're in a Jewish worship place. They, they know they're... They know their Bible. They know their Bible. Uh, they know the prophecies of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 35, um, I, you don't have to turn to it unless you want to. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 35, I'll read a little bit of it to you. In Isaiah chapter 35, we find one of those Isaianic prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. We find one of those prophecies about the Messianic age coming. Uh, in Isaiah, chapter, and the whole chapter 35 is amazing. Uh, chapter 35, uh, second part of verse 2, They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, uh, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. This is what Messiah is supposed to do when Messiah comes. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and Fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. That's kind of taking to the second coming there. Look at verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then, lame, then shall the lame man leap like a deer in the tongue of the mute sing for joy. One of the first things I always think of when I see this text, not the, it's not important, but one of the first things I always think of when I was a Duke student and I was at Tabernacle Church in Greensboro, really, really young, and I was participating in worship. I will never forget. And this was a long time ago. I mean, this was the text I was reading on a Sunday morning. It wasn't preaching, just I was reading the text. 
and it was out of the old RSV. This, I'm reading out of the um, ESV. But the old RSV, I even remember exactly how it goes in the old RSV, Revised Standard Version. Uh, at the end of verse 6, where, it's, where this translation says, The tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. In the old RSV it says, um, The tongue of the dumb shall sing for joy, or something like that. I got tongue-tied. My, my tongue, the tongue of the dumb, I just, it took me about three tries to get tongue of the dumb out. So I think about that every time I see this text. It, I, I'm glad they made it easier to read. The tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. Um, it's amazing how you kind of have memories like that that just won't go away. That's not the most important thing here in the text. But if you look at verse 6, then shall the lame lame here I go. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. That word for leaping there, the Greek word in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, is the exact same word that Luke uses here in in in, in Acts, where it says, you know, this lame man and leaping up. The Messianic age had started to come. Messiah had arrived. And the Messianic age was dawning. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And again, these people knew this man. He'd been laying there 40 years. I'm, I'm sure that it created a stir. And, and Luke tells you it did, verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Um, I'm sure they did. I'm sure they took notice. There's a reason the early Christian community grew so quickly. A lot of reasons. Uh, the people saw this. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You remember Jesus said in the Gospel of John, You... Us, you, you will do even greater works than I do. Remember that? It's kind of a fascinating statement Jesus says in the Gospel of John. You will do even greater works than I do. Now, we obviously don't do greater in quality works than Jesus did, but quantity. We're doing the works of Jesus now all over the world. Um particularly in those parts of the globe where um, people still have a supernatural, have a worldview with the supernatural part of it. You know, in those parts of the globe where everybody hasn't made the assumption that only the material world is r real, and that's true in places like Africa, parts of Asia, part a lot of South America, those people haven't achieved this prior assumption that only the material world is real, and we, sh we sure hope the spiritual world may be real. That's kind of our view here in the West. But in some places, they, they know the spiritual world is real. I mean, it's real. It's a thick part of their life. And that's why I've read many times over the last 30 years, a lot of us going on, particularly on the African continent today, seems makes, makes the book of Acts look almost sedate compared to what's going on in the African continent. 
as far as the healings, the, the miracles, the signs and wonders. That's the, that's the phrase that the book of Acts uses, signs and wonders. One of the reasons that the gospel is growing so quickly um, on the African continent is, is being, um, is be, the proclamation of the gospel is being um, accompanied by signs and wonders. Because there, remember, they expect it there. Remember Jesus left Nazareth because he said he couldn't do any miracles there because people didn't believe. So he left. Yeah, God is a gentleman in a lot of ways. God, you know, God, quotation from C.S. Lewis, God woos us, he doesn't ravish us. There's days I wish he'd ravish me. I wish he would just knock some sense into my head. But that's not used the way God works. He woos us. So, yeah, if we don't believe that he's real, we don't believe the supernatural is real, we don't believe that there is the power of the Holy Spirit, that there's good spirit, bad spirit, um, if we don't believe that, God's a gentleman, so is the Holy Spirit a gentleman. And, you know, Jesus may leave Nazareth because, and not do any great works there because of their unbelief. Um, Christians, for Christianity to be revived in our culture, we've got to start back before the preaching of Christianity. We've got to convince people of this culture of two things. And they don't believe in either. We've got to convince people of two things. Uh, supernatural reality is more real than physical reality. We have to convince people of that. Um, the second thing we have to convince people is, you know, this supernatural reality that we call God has given us certain laws, laws of nature, laws of morality, and we've broken them, so we're guilty. This culture around us doesn't believe in supernatural and doesn't believe they're guilty of anything. They don't believe they've broken laws. They're in need, they're in need of redemption. If, if, you got, if you deal with a culture that doesn't believe in the supernatural and they don't have anything to redeem... I don't know what you do with Christianity in that culture. you got to start with there is God, there is a spiritual world, there's spiritual reality that's more real than this material world. It's going to be the bulk of our existence is in a spiritual realm. So the spirit world is real, and we need, we're guilty people. We need what God's offering us in Christ. But if you don't start there... It's, it's, a, it's hard to fit Christianity into a lifestyle that doesn't believe in the supernatural and you have nothing to be redeemed from. Anyway, I offer you that no extra charge. But that's why if you look somewhere like Asia, particularly China, there's like 300,000 people coming to Christ every week in China, I'm reading. If you look at places like that, they believe in the supernatural. Now what you have to do on the African continent is just kind of take them away from some witch doctors and introduce them to the Holy Spirit. But they believe in a supernatural reality. You know, take, take them away from ancestor worship and introduce them to the communion of the saints. So we have to just kind of shift them to a different way of viewing spirituality. In this culture, people don't believe in a spiritual reality. Whether they know that or not, that's the default position in, in the West. That's because we're heirs of the Enlightenment. So, um, yeah, that's why this sort of stuff, that's why in the, in the West, we don't do this as much as we used to. Because 
our experience has changed us on this. We even, for a bulk of our history in the West as Christians, the way we looked at this sort of supernatural stuff, healings, we said that was only done by the apostles, and it was only done in the apostolic age, and it ceased being done when the, when the Bible was written. That's called cessationism. I grew up in a church that taught cessationism. It was still around. Um, it, it's, it's fallen on hard times in the last 30 or 40 years because, you know, you go to Africa and you got one, you got, you either had to say God's doing something that is out of my box, God is doing something here, or your other option, now this is what I heard growing up in the church, I heard, if that stuff's going on, God's not doing it, so it's of the devil. But if you see the stuff being done, yes, yeah, cessationism is not, there's not a lot of Christians that theologically hold doctrines of cessationism anymore. And some of the seminaries that used to officially teach cessationism don't teach it anymore. Um, back in the 70s, you get fired from certain seminaries for that. Go read Jack Deere's book, Surprised by the Spirit. He got surprised by the Spirit, and he was asked to leave a very prominent seminary because that wasn't in their theology. And they've changed now, thanks to Chuck Swindoll, by the way. They've changed because a lot of people have been on a journey where if you become open to the, the spirit world, you may become open to other things after that. But if you're closed to something like what you're seeing here in Acts, you know, it's not our experience, so therefore it can't be reality. Now we Americans are about that. If it's not my experience, if it's not my, the way I've experienced life, then that determines reality. So, um, yeah, we get the rest of the world now that the world's smaller, we're seeing stuff in Africa and China that um, is, is pushing us on our worldview that says the supernatural world is not real. So that's part of what Pope Gregory in the 7th, 6th century meant, seven, early 7th century, what Pope Gregory meant when he said, yeah, we got silver and gold now, but we don't have the power of the Spirit. You know, we need, we need, I'm not opposed to the silver and gold, make your pledge. I'm not opposed to the silver and gold. But that can't be the focus of our life. It can't be the focus of our life. We got to, um, we got to do this Christian thing, Jesus Christ way. You know, if you just want to turn this into a book of, of ethics, you, do, you, you know, you know what the Jefferson Bible is, right? Jefferson was a Thomas who I have great, great respect for. Uh, my children finally said, don't take me to Monticello anymore. Um, I took them all over places like that. But I have great respect for Thomas Jefferson. He was a child of the Enlightenment. And that's why he produced the Jefferson Bible. You can order your copy. He sat down literally with scissors, and he chopped out all the supernatural weird stuff like this. He just wanted the ethics. He loved the Sermon on the Mount. Which, by the way, I don't think you can live without some supernatural help. But he, he went through the scissors, made the Jefferson Bible. And by the way, sometimes still in Congress, when they are sworn in, they're sworn in on a Bible, but it may be a Jefferson Bible. Um, but, you know, most of us aren't audacious enough to do what Thomas did, sit down with a pair of scissors. But we just do it by default in this culture. But he went through and took out every bit of, from the New Testament because he loved the ethical teaching of Jesus, which ethically Jesus doesn't offer us anything new. 
nothing new. Um, please say that to your Jewish friends because it really offends your Jewish friends when you act like Jesus made up all this ethic stuff. All the Jewish rabbis were teaching this stuff. In the Sermon on the Mount, everything he says there were being said in some form or fashion by the Jewish rabbis. So, yeah, please don't offend your Jewish friends back and like, you know, we're the ones who invented love your neighbor. By the way, that comes from the book of Leviticus. Um, yeah, this ethics stuff is not what's new about Jesus. Um, that's not what's new. It says dying, dying a sacrificial death, being raised from the dead, being ascended into heaven, living supernaturally through his people now. That's what the New Testament's about. Um, but you got to be willing to kind of embrace that, that, that the possibility of that worldview. you got to accept a lawgiver before you can ever accept law. If you don't accept a lawgiver, then law's up for grabs. You make it what you want it to be. But if you believe there's a lawgiver, then you may at least need to consult the lawgiver as to what the law is. Um, we've, we've done weird things with the Christian faith, particularly since the Enlightenment. We've done weird things with the Christian faith. Um, I don't know if you ever watched on EWTN, that's the Roman Catholic Network, there's some good programs there, uh, Saints and Scoundrels, you ever seen that program? It's very entertaining. Uh, a great philosophy professor is the host, and they use these actors, and what he will do, what he'll do is he'll put like St. Fran- like Francis and Machiavelli in a room together. He will put like Pope Pius and Margaret Sanger in a room together. You can go, if you don't know who Margaret Sanger is, you can figure it out. And it's it's amazing to watch 30 minute segments. You see this clash of, he put one of my favorite authors, Flannery O'Connor, in a room with Ayn Rand. Two different worldviews. Won't tell you how that one ended, but you you learn that Flannery O'Connor had a short fuse. Um, yeah, we don't even pay attention to the worldview that we have. And, um, and, and everything we do in life is based on our worldview. The glasses through which we see the world. If you don't believe in God, a lawgiver who intervenes. I had a person in one of my churches. And we, it, this really was fun. And you talk to some of the people at Main Street United Methodist Church, they'll tell you it was fun. We, we, he and I team taught a Sunday school class. Now, that senior class was only attractive to certain people because it was like point-counterpoint with him and I teaching it. He, believed, he, he fervently said, I'm a, he would say, I'm a deist. I don't believe in a God who intervenes in history. Well, there I was. You know, this, this kind of teaches me. Thomas Jefferson was a deist, by the way. Uh, they they, they like the ethics. They like the watchmaker God who set the world in motion and then steps back. That's deism. That's the way they boiled, that's the way they dumbed down Christianity during the Enlightenment to make it palatable like to people like Thomas Jefferson. Anyway, it was, fun. it was a fun class. He and I talked together. We really did love each other. Um, I still think he was a lunatic at some point. But, um, you know, he would say, I, I don't believe in a God who intervenes today. Anyway, yeah, your worldview will determine really what you believe. Um, you may profess you believe something, but your worldview will determine what you really believe. Is there a lawgiver, or do we get to make it up? Is there a God who intervenes in human history and life, 
Or is he just like the creator who's watching things from afar? Um, yeah, I, you can't take the Bible seriously and be a deist, be a non-interventionist, be a cessationist. If you win any money on Jeopardy with any of these terms, I want it. Um, but you, you've got to, you see a God here that is active and involved in human life, both as lawgiver, both as lawgiver who can suspend certain natural laws if he chooses to bring immediate healing. That's why the doctor checked him out and said, yes, his ankles and his feet are strong. He's been healed. Uh, he's not just working on adrenaline at this point. There's been a healing that's taken place. So, um, you know, I know our culture loves to sit in judgment on the Bible. We've made an art form of it since the Enlightenment. I just invite you to consider letting the Bible sit in judgment on you. Let it, let it challenge your worldview. Let it challenge your assumptions. Let it challenge your, some of your deepest held convictions that your wonderful grandma taught you. You know, let the Bible sit in, in, in judgment on, on us. So, um, yeah. Um, it's in the text. you got to do something with it there. Those people weren't confused. It wasn't just a rush of adrenaline in that man who had been lame for 40 years that caused him to do what he did. Let's pray together. God, for the gift of this day, we give you thanks. I thank you for these people who, who want to know you, know your word, who want to be formed by you, be formed by your word, so that they can transform the society around them. Lord, we pray that we'll not let ourselves be molded into a certain image by this society around us, but may we be the ones who transform it. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Go in peace. Make some new friends before you leave.